good to see everyone here tonight. Thankful for the opportunity to stand before you again tonight, get into God's Word, study things that I hope will be encouraging to you, study things I hope will be helpful to you, to this congregation, to whatever congregation you belong to. I, I realize tonight we've got uh, visitors from other congregations in the area. We're certainly thankful uh, for you coming to support the meeting here at Plainview this week. Uh, we cherish the fellowship that we enjoy one with another through Christ. And we hope first and foremost that Christ is glorified uh, by everything that we do here tonight. Tonight I want to talk about, or I want to raise the question, what makes the church grow? There is no shortage of ideas and opinions and books uh, which you can find at any Christian bookstore that'll give uh, potential answers to this question, what makes the church grow? I've got just a, a, a small sample uh, of some of those on the screen behind me. A lot of different ideas as to what it takes to make the church grow. The growth of the body, the church has talked a little bit about in Ephesians 4.16. I'm going to break my tradition and read this out of the New King James Version just because it's a little bit easier maybe for me to read and maybe for you to understand. If, if you're reading in the King James, you should have no problem getting the same uh, understanding from what I'm about to read here. In Ephesians 4.16, it says, From whom, now that's speaking of Jesus Christ, the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying or the building up of itself in love. The body under consideration here is the body of Christ, the church. And this passage here talks about how we are members of that body, how we have a part to play. We have an important place and function in that body. And when you and I, as members of the body, do our part, the body grows. It's strengthened. It's built up in love. It is God's will for the church to grow. But what ingredients are necessary to help make the church grow? That's the question I want to do my best to try to answer tonight. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, you know, Brother James, uh, what could you possibly know about church growth? Or what are your credentials uh, when it comes to church growth? I'll be the first to tell you tonight, look, I'm not a church growth expert. Okay, I haven't been to Bible college and received any kind of a diploma or a degree or a certificate uh, in the field of church growth. I have no, no formal training in the, the area of church growth. I really have very few credentials when it comes to this topic. But the one thing I do have is the Word of God. I've got the Word of God, the same as you do. And you know... The Word of God is inspired by God Himself. There's no better book to teach us and tell us what it takes to make a church grow. I've read God's Word, I've studied it hard, and I've pondered it long, and what I found is that God's Word gives us an answer to this question we see behind the screen, what makes a church grow? So rather than going to all the different philosophies and opinions and books of men, let's go to the Word of God tonight. And let's see what God's Word tells us about what makes a church grow. And if I can offer you a scriptural answer to this question behind me, 
as I'm going to try to do tonight, you know, what more could some church growth expert give you? I want you to pay close attention to the things I say tonight. You know, you know judge for yourself, listen very carefully, follow along in the Scriptures, because what God says about this is really all that should matter to us. Not, well, not man's answer, not man's idea, not man's opinion, but what does God say about the growth of the church in his word. What I want to do tonight is start off by considering the church at Jerusalem. Now, we don't have time to read all of Acts chapter 2, chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6, but I'd encourage you to do that in your own private time. And if you would take the time to read... Acts chapter 2 through chapter 6, you will find that in those chapters we are introduced to a scriptural example of a booming and growing congregation of the church. In Acts chapter 2 verse 40, verse 40 this is after Peter preached the gospel to all the Jews. Told them in verse 38 to repent and be baptized, right, for the remission of their sins. In Acts 2 and 40, it says, with many, with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward, which means this crooked generation. Verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And if you pick up reading there through verse 42, 43, 44, down to verse 46, it describes those 3,000, how they continued steadfastly together, how they shared with one another. And when we get down to verse 46, it speaks of those 3,000 who gladly received the word and were baptized. It says, And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. It says they were praising God and having favor with all the people. Now look, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. This is the day that Christ built his church as he promised to do. You know, and on day one, they started with 3,000. We look at that and we say, well, that's a pretty good start. That's a pretty good start. You know, if we could have a congregation of 3,000 here in Plainview or in my Home, hometown back in Arkansas, you know, we might think that would be a, a major accomplishment. But you know, the church at Jerusalem wasn't content with 3,000. They continued to preach Christ and they continued to preach the gospel. We get to Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Bible says, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. So we have 3,000 in Acts 2. Now we have mention of 5,000. You know, that's growing. That's more and more. You know, they're growing very, very rapidly. More and more people are coming to Christ. More and more people are coming uh, into the kingdom, into the body. And you know, they didn't stop there. The church just keeps on growing. Into Acts chapter 5, the believers were the more added to the Lord. Multitudes. Don't even tell us how many thousand here. It says multitudes, both of men and women. And you know, when we get on into Acts chapter 6, the church at Jerusalem is still growing. They're still growing. Acts 6 and 7, the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, once you stop and think about what we've seen about the church at Jerusalem. Church at Jerusalem was a growing church. What makes the church grow? Well, you know, if we could figure out what made the church at Jerusalem grow, we would have a scriptural answer, wouldn't we? 
to the question that is before us tonight. So we're going to study the church at Jerusalem. We're going to study this growing, this flourishing, this booming church here in the city of Jerusalem. And we don't have time, like I said, to read all of Acts 2 through Acts chapter 6. But there are several things that become very, very apparent about the church at Jerusalem as you read those chapters. And the first thing is this. The church at Jerusalem was a Christ-centered church. To them, it was all about Jesus Christ. When they preached, they preached in the name of Christ. They preached Christ. Acts 5 and 42, and daily in the temple and every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. It was all about Christ. When they performed miracles, you know, the apostles had the miraculous powers to perform miracles back then. But they didn't do it in their own name and to their own honor and glory. They did it to the glory of Christ and in the name of or by the authority of Christ. An example of that's in Acts chapter 3 when Peter healed that lame man there at the gate of the temple. In Acts 3 and 6, then Peter said to him, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And that's exactly what happened to the man, right? He got up and, and, and he could walk. His legs were restored. He, he could walk. He was lame. But this miracle was performed in the name of Christ or by the authority of Christ to his glory, and he was healed. It was all about Christ. You know, as the church at Jerusalem spread out throughout all Judea and then Samaria and to other parts of the Roman Empire, they would eventually take the name Christian. They called themselves Christian in honor of who? Jesus Christ. Bible talks about the church at Antioch in Acts eleven twenty six, and says the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. They would be known as the churches of Christ. Church belongs to Christ. He's the head of the body of the church. Paul wrote a letter to the church at Rome in the last chapter of that letter. He says in Romans 16, 16, the churches of Christ salute, which means greet thee, greet you. They called themselves churches of Christ. They called themselves Christians. See, it was all about Christ. If we want to grow today and we want to grow in the right direction, we must be Christ-centered as well. Unfortunately, a lot of religious groups uh, seem to be hung up on or very much focused on the different ideas or doctrines of men, so much so that some denominational churches are even named after men. And, you know, these were things that were set in order many hundreds of years ago. For example, we, we're familiar with a, a denomination called the Lutheran denomination. I'm not trying to pick on Lutherans. But I just give that as an illustration, you know. If we wanted to follow Martin Luther, I suppose we could be a Lutheran church. We could call ourselves Lutherans. If we wanted to follow Menno Simmons, we could be a Mennonite church and call ourselves Mennonites. But why not make it about Christ instead of some mortal man and his doctrine? Why not call it Christ Church? Why not proudly just take the name Christian? Again, if we want to grow in the right direction, we've got to be like the church at Jerusalem, Christ-centered in everything we do. It needs to be about Christ and for Christ, to His honor and to His glory. Something else about the church at Jerusalem that we notice in the book of Acts is that they were a church with conviction. Now, their primary conviction was that Jesus Christ had died, he was buried, and that God had raised him from the dead. And that's what Peter preached. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Peter preached, saying, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord 
and Christ. Now, the elders, the scribes, the religious leaders of Israel did not care at all for this doctrine that Peter was preaching. This idea that Jesus had been raised from the dead. So not long after this, in fact, if you read in uh, Acts chapter 3 and 4, Peter and John were arrested and they were told to stop preaching Jesus. I told them, stop preaching this man Jesus. Stop preaching his resurrection. You know what Peter said in Acts chapter 4? In Acts chapter 4, verse 19, Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken or listen unto you, more than unto God judge ye. He said, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now that's conviction. He said, Whether it's right to listen to you, or to listen to God, you figure that out. He says, we're gonna, we cannot help but teach and tell the things that we were, are witnesses of, okay? And so, there was a series of arrests. The, the apostles were actually arrested and detained three different times. And after being arrested the third time and being told to stop preaching their doctrine, do you know what Peter said? In Acts 5.29, they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. That's conviction. These first century brethren stood behind their convictions with a backbone. And we've got to do likewise if we want the church to grow. And, you know, the church has to be built on a foundation of scriptural doctrine and teaching. And it's conviction in that doctrine and in that teaching that makes that foundation solid as a rock. We need to have the same type of conviction that they had about what they were teaching and what they were preaching. In addition to the conviction that they had in their heart, you know, it wasn't to the uh, diminishment or to the minimization of their compassion. The church at Jerusalem was a church that showed a lot of compassion. They were compassionate with each other. They shared with each other. They took care of one another. The Bible talks about that in Acts chapter 2, verse 44. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their uh, possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. They shared with one another. You know, they were also compassionate to those who were outside the body of Christ, outside the church. Acts 5.16, there came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. The apostles had the ability to perform miracles. And can you imagine all these many people coming in from round about Jerusalem? All these sick people coming? And you know, the Bible says that the apostles healed these people. They didn't turn them away. They had compassion on them. They healed them. You know, here's what it boils down to, brothers and sisters. We've got to love one another. We've got to love one another. We've got to have compassion. 1 John 4 and 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We got to love one another. I'll tell you something else we got to do. We got to love the souls of lost sinners. Now, I'm not saying we have to love or approve of their sinful habits and their sinful lifestyles. We cannot do that. 
But we need to learn to look beneath all that and see the soul that Jesus died to save and love that soul. Love, compassion, and kindness, in my experience, will bring more people through these church doors than anything else. It's the love, the kindness, and compassion you show to people each and every day. That really, that really touches people. It really gets people's attention. It helps them see that you, for some reason, are different than everyone else in the world. And when a person gets curious enough and wants to know why we're so different, then we have opportunity to explain to them and teach them about Christ and His church. The church at Jerusalem was a very courageous church. They knew the real meaning of courage. In Acts 4, verse 31... And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the Word of God with boldness. They spoke the Word of God with boldness. You know, it's easy to have courage in the absence of persecution. It's easy to lift yourself up when there's nobody there trying to pull you back down, is what I mean, right? But you know, at every turn... Here for the apostles in the church at Jerusalem, there was always somebody trying to pull them down. They faced a lot of different types of persecution. But I want to tell you something. Real courage looks persecution square in the face and it does not back down. Look at Acts 5, verse 41. This is after the apostles had been beaten. They had been physically beaten for preaching Jesus. What was their response to that in Acts 5, verse 41? They departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for His name. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. That's courage. That's boldness. Were the apostles scared? Were they scared? We look at the story and we say, well, it doesn't look like they were scared. I want to tell you something. I think they were scared. I'll tell you what I think these men were scared of. I think they were scared of what might happen if they stopped preaching Jesus. I think that's what they were scared of. And that's why they continued to teach and preach with courage and with boldness. Now, are we scared of what might happen if we withhold the truth of God's Word from someone who really needs it? Are we scared of offending people with the truth of God's Word? Sometimes we can get that way. Part of it's due to the culture and the society that we live in today. But you know what I found? There's a lot of people out there. I don't know that I'd say most people, but there are a lot of people out there that want the truth. And if you and I could have a conversation with them and sit down with them and talk with them and teach them the truth in a kind, loving, and patient manner. I think most people will go e even go so far as to love the truth. There are people out there that want the truth. There are people out there that, that will embrace the truth if we'll be courageous and bold and share it with them. So let's do that. Let's give people the truth so they can grow, so, so the church can grow accordingly. 
Church at Jerusalem was a church that was a group of people who contributed. They understood the meaning of contribution. There are many people in the church at Jerusalem who stepped up to the plate and contributed to the benefit of the whole group. They contributed in a lot of different ways. You know, financial contribution was part of that. We read about that in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, where it says, Joses, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's an example of one Christian man who made a great contribution in a financial sense to the benefit or the betterment of the body of Christ. But I want to tell you something. They did more than just contribute their money to the church and to the cause. The apostles were contributing their time, their effort, their energy. In Acts chapter 6, verse 4, the apostles said that they were giving themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That was a big part of their contribution. There were a group of of men in Acts chapter 6 that we also read about who uh, were also contributing in in a way of serving the congregation. In Acts chapter 6, verse 2, the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It's not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look out ye among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we, we may appoint over, the, over this business. The business they appointed them over was to take care of needy widows, uh, to make sure they weren't being neglected in the distribution of the things that people needed in the church. The apostles appointed seven men, and they were to oversee this, and that was their contribution. That was their part that they played in making sure the body was strong and making sure things were taken care of. Listen, we've all got something to contribute. Every single one of us. Our time, our effort, our energy, our talents, whatever it might be. We've all got something to contribute. And what I found is many times the church is a lot lot like a piggy bank. It's a lot like a piggy bank in the sense that you're going to get out of it about as much as you put into it. And let's all find ways to contribute to the success and growth of the church. We'll get so much more out of it if we'll be active and we'll be involved and we'll put something into it. Don't sit back and think, well, there's nothing for me to do. Or I don't have an important part or, you know, I can't do anything. That's not true. That's not the teaching of the Bible. There's a place for every member in the body of Christ. There's a job for all of us to be doing. To glorify God, to help strengthen and grow the church. The church at Jerusalem was a church that was committed. They understood commitment. They were committed to the cause of Christ. I want you to think about this from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The Bible says that those 3,000 in Jerusalem who gladly received the word and were baptized, the Bible says in verse 42 that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now what you need to realize and remember is that many of these Jews who heard the gospel that day and obeyed it in baptism, they weren't from Jerusalem. You go back into chapter 2, they were from many, many different nations throughout the Roman Empire. And they had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. They hadn't come to Jerusalem planning on changing religions. But lo and behold, they come, 
They hear of this Christ. They hear the preaching of the gospel. They're convicted by it. They obey it in baptism. They change religions from Judaism to Christianity. Did they all just up and go home? Okay, see you later. We're going home. No, the Bible says they continued steadfastly. For a time, the Scripture doesn't tell us. They continued steadfastly with the church there at Jerusalem because they were committed to the cause. Even when men like Saul began to wreak havoc on the church, arresting men and women, they didn't give up. They didn't give up. Look at Acts 8 and 4. Therefore, the Bible talks in Acts 8 about a great scattering abroad, a great uh, persecution brought on by Saul that many in the church at Jerusalem were fleeing from Jerusalem because of this persecution. Verse 4 says, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. They had every reason to run and to hide and, and, you know, for the sake of their own life and their own safety. They had every reason to just run and, and hide under a rock and just, you know, be quiet and don't draw attention to themselves. What did they do? They're running for their lives. And they're still preaching and teaching the word. That's commitment right there. Their commitment was unquenchable. They were not going to give up on the cause of Christ. We've got to have the same level of commitment today if we want the church to grow. And brothers and sisters, these are just a few things that we see flourishing in that booming and growing con uh, congregation of the church that we, we read of there in Jerusalem. But I want us tonight to take a few moments and notice some of the things that we do not find happening and taking place with the church there at Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem did not compromise. They didn't compromise even in the midst of a lot of different threats and a lot of different influences and a lot of different persecutions. They did not compromise. Proverbs 23, 23 tells us that we need to buy the truth and sell it not. Wisdom and instruction and understanding. Buy the truth and sell it not means don't compromise. Don't compromise. You know, we've got a lot of religious groups today that compromise the truth of God's Word. We, we see it all around us. I, I want to give you an example of this tonight to illustrate a point. Seems like it was not too long ago, but it, it probably was several years ago, maybe 10 years ago. I remember it very well. The Episcopal Church, and I'm not trying to pick on Episcopalians. I'm just using this as an illustration. About 10 years ago, I believe it was, the Episcopal Church, in order to be more appealing to the homosexual community, they voted to allow homosexual priests into their fellowship. And you know, they decided that that is the course they wanted to take and they expected to see booming growth because of their very uh, progressive decision on this issue. Okay? You know what happened when they made that decision? It was reported that 10% of their members... 10%, one out of every 10, must have been reading their Bibles because they were so disappointed in that decision that the day it was made, they, they left and walked away from that denomination. 
and I, and I give you that illustration to prove a point. Compromise doesn't grow churches. Compromise actually weakens churches. They lost probably a good majority of their Bible believers so that they could gain fellowship with a few unrepentant homosexuals. Do you see that compromise does not grow and strengthen churches? It actually weakens churches. We can't compromise the truth. Now listen. Our hope and our prayer is that the person who's living the homosexual lifestyle will come to know Christ and come to see their sin and repent of it and turn to, to the Lord for forgiveness. And when they do, God will forgive them just as much as he's forgiven us for our sins. But we cannot compromise what the Bible plainly teaches about the homosexual lifestyle. They need the truth. The truth is what will save them. The same truth that saves you and me will save them if they will accept it and receive it. They need the truth. If we love people, we need to tell them the truth. Compromising the truth, watering down the truth, exchanging the truth for religious lies or political correctness does not save people. It does not help people. When you love someone, you tell them the truth, even when it hurts, even when it's hard to hear. We've got to tell people the truth. The church at Jerusalem was not a careless group of people. They were not careless in the work that they did together. Okay? Now listen, I want to tell you something. As long as you've got people in the church, you're always going to have problems. People have problems. I, I have problems from time to time. As long as you've got people in the church, you'll have problems and that's okay. You know the church at Jerusalem, amidst all this rapid growth, they ran into problems? They had problems. One of those problems is described there in uh, Acts chapter 6. We talked about it a little bit a moment ago. Acts 6 and 1, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, they're, they're growing rapidly. There arose a murmuring of the Grecians, that was the foreign-born Jewish women, a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, that would have been the, he the Jews who were native to Jerusalem and Judea, there was this murmuring between these two different groups of Jews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration or the daily distribution of benevolence. You know, the Grecian, the foreign-born widows thought that they were being shorted and weren't being treated fairly, and the native-born Jewish widows from Judea and Jerusalem were being shown favoritism. And they got this murmuring going on. Now, that's a problem, isn't it? They've got a problem. Yeah, they even had problems back in the church way back then. What did they do about their problem? First thing, they didn't, they didn't deny the problem. They didn't ignore the problem. They didn't sit back and let the problem just carelessly fester and grow and grow. They addressed the problem. They fixed the problem. If we want the church to grow, we've got to have that same type of attitude because problems are going to arise. Wherever you got people, you got problems. But you know, we can't be careless in addressing things that need to be addressed. Can't be careless in our own personal relationships between brother and sister in the church. We need to treat one another right. When a problem comes up, we need to deal with it in a scriptural way so we can come to re resolution and continue to be 
strong in our relationships in the Lord. The church at Jerusalem was not carnal. They were not slaves to the carnal man. They were too afraid to be. We read a story in Acts 5, Acts 5.11. It says, Great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. What in the world was the church so fearful about? What was this great fear? If you go back and read earlier in the chapter, you read about the story of a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. You remember them? Bible tells us that they tempted the Spirit of the Lord and they lied unto God. They sold their land and secretly kept back part of the prophet and tried to lead the church, the rest of the church, to believe that they had actually given all when they really hadn't. You remember that story? They were carnal. They were carnal, and you know, the Lord wasn't going to stand for that. You remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? You know, the consequence of that was, sometimes we look at that and we say, well, that's, that's severe, that's very drastic. They both died because of this. But you know, I think the Lord did that to illustrate a point for you and me. Carnal people will kill the church. Carnal people will kill the church if they're allowed to go unchecked. So it starts with us making sure we're living the life that we should live. Not living a, a, a sinful life, not living a, a life in which we just fulfill the lusts of our flesh. We need to be living lives of holiness and righteousness. Because our life is a reflection of, of the Lord and His church. We need to shine the light of Christ. If people look at us and they can't see any light, if they see darkness... That's a bad reflection on Christ and a bad reflection on His church. Galatians 5 and 9, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Just a little. Just a little bit of leaven. Just let a little bit of sin get going in God's people. And it can have devastating consequences. We, we can't be carnal. Church at Jerusalem was not carnal. Say something else that they were not, they were not critical. They were not overly critical of each other. You know what a critic is? A critic is someone who's always judging, always exploiting other people's weaknesses. You know, there are several offices that we read about in the local congregation, the office of elder, the office of deacon. One office that we don't read about in the New Testament is the office of church critic. It's not an office in the church. We've got to be careful of being overly critical. Now, we've got to be honest with each other. I'm not saying we, sh we shouldn't do that. But we've got to be careful that we don't cross the line and just be overly critical with one another. Galatians 5.14, For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Got to love one another. That's what it goes back to, showing compassion. Verse 15, But if ye bite and devour one another... He says, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. You know, you let a few critical people get going in the church, and they get to biting and chewing on each other and biting and chewing on others, and then that starts to spread and people start doing it back. You can just, just sit back and watch the whole thing be ripped to shreds. It won't take long. That's why we've got to beware of being overly critical. 
Critics can hinder church growth. We, we, we could just need to bank on that. We just need to count on that. That if we're all overly critical with one another and not quick to show compassion rather than criticism, it'll affect the, the growth and the strength of the church. The church at Jerusalem was not cold. They were not cold in the mouth of Christ. They were not like the church that we read about in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. You know what Jesus said about that church? He said, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. He says, I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee. Literally means I will vomit you out of my mouth, Christ says. Now if lukewarm is unacceptable to the Lord, we're in trouble if he looks down and finds us cold. We're in trouble. We need to be on fire for the Lord and His kingdom. Like a fire burning within us, we need to be passionate about what Christ has done for us and about the blessings that we have in Him. And we need to share those things. You know, a cold fire doesn't spread. It doesn't grow. It just sits there and smolders and eventually dies. And if we're cold... How will the church grow if we don't have that passion burning in us like a fire? A passion for the Lord. A passion for spiritual things. A passion for the church. If we're cold, individually and collectively, the church will not grow. These are just some of the things that we don't see in that growing and booming church there at Jerusalem. These are things most definitely that will hinder and not help the growth of the church. Tonight I've tried to do my very best to give you a scriptural answer to the question, what makes a church grow? I hope these scriptures tonight have opened your eyes. I hope they've enlightened you. I also hope it's re-energized your enthusiasm for us all to get out there and do what it takes to help make the church grow, and to help make it strong. Okay, I want to close by reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 3 and 6. This is where Paul says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. He says, so then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now look at verse 9. He says, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. You know, when Paul speaks of labor here, every man receiving his own reward for his own labor, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about work. It takes work to make the church grow. Now, I would have included the word work in my presentation here, but it didn't begin with the letter C. Everything else I showed with you began with the letter C. So work, letter W, just wouldn't fit. But don't leave here tonight thinking that it doesn't take work to make the church grow because it certainly, certainly does. Now, it's always God who gives the increase when the church grows. Always. But listen, how can God give an increase if we don't plant? And how can God give an increase if we don't water? 
How can God give the increase if we don't get up, get out, and work? And, you know, there's been a lot of work put into this gospel meeting that's been going on this week, and the work started, you know, several weeks ago. And a lot of different individuals have played a part in help making it a success. I appreciate every single person who plays a part in helping put together meetings like this. It takes a lot of people working together, and it takes a lot of work. Let's continue to work. Even after the meetings are over, the work still needs to go on. Let's continue to work and to labor together so that God can give an increase. I hope and pray God will bless you as you strive to put these scriptures into practice in this congregation, in your home congregation. Church can grow. God tells us how it will happen in His Word like we've studied tonight. It's up to us to get out and play our part and do our share so the body can grow and be strengthened and built up. I appreciate your attention to these things tonight. Now, before we close, we're going to offer a song of invitation if you're here tonight and you're not a part of the Lord's church, you're not a part of the body of Christ, you've never put the Lord on in baptism, never confessed His name, we give you opportunity to do that tonight. If you need Christ, if you need to obey the gospel, if you need the prayers of the church, we pray you'll take advantage of this time that we give you to ask for help. To ask for our help, to ask for the Lord's help. I want to ask you to stop for a moment and think about the time in your life that you were the most close to God. Can you look back in your life and envision and put your finger on the time of your life when you were the closest to God that you've ever been? Can you do that? Do you have it in your mind? I want to tell you something, brother or sister. If that day that you were the most close to God isn't today, then you've moved away from God in some form or fashion. You've moved away from God. I would hope and pray that all of us could leave here today being the closest we've ever been in our relationship to God. It should be a thing of today, a thing of the present, not a thing of the past. And if you're here and you've moved away from God in some aspect of your life, let us help you. Let us pray with you. Let us study with you and do what we can to bring you back as close as you've ever been to God so you can go forward with Him from this very day. If you need our prayers, you need our help, make it known by coming forward, having a seat on the front while we stand and while we sing.